busy work for the students, but one of the things on the note said, you can play the music. I have a song playlist on my computer. Just log in, press play. So I did that. Every class, I would give them their assignment. I would press play. And in every class, one song kept looping through his playlist over and over. Does anybody remember this song by Pharrell Williams, Happy? Because I'm happy, and I'm going to try it. I won't try to sing it, but you know the song. It's perky, it's exciting, it makes you feel happy, but every single time that song came on the playlist, the students would go, ah, not this song again. Please turn it off or turn it down. The teacher had played it so much and you know, you've done this with songs before that they just got worn out on it. They just couldn't hear it again. And I thought, that's ironic that a song that's supposed, it is designed to make you happy, is making them unhappy. Well, think about this. This is going to be a loaded question, but are you happy in life right now? Now, you don't have to answer it out loud, but it's a tough question. You just think to yourself, are you happy with your life right now? And then think, what makes you happy? Or what do we think, what do you think will make us happy? Is it shopping? I made a list of things that we think will make us happy. Sometimes when we go buy new things, maybe you don't like shopping, but you like having new things. So you get new clothes, new shoes, new toys. There's a burst of happiness there, right? You got something new, but does that last? No. Usually through time, our clothes, our toys, our shoes are worn out, and that Burst of happiness was just temporary. What makes you happy? Is it making other people happy? Is anybody a people pleaser? I used to be, but ministry has taught me not to be a people pleaser anymore. And I've realized that if I go through ministry and I try to make one group of people happy, you know what that does to another group? Makes them unhappy. So it's just like you can't please everybody. And I've kind of learned through time, just be faithful to God and, and don't make your primary source of happiness other people's happiness. What makes you happy? Is it dating that person? Is it buying that new house or that new car or just having something new? What makes you happy? The world may tell us it's indulge in any sort of sexual desire or sexual fulfillment that you want. The world around us will tell you that will make you happy or popularity, or money, and the list could go on. Now, some of the things overall that I've talked about so far about what makes you happy not all of them are bad. I'm not up here to condemn all things in life that you might enjoy. But overall, my point is that the things that we think will make us happy or give us a burst of happiness usually are only temporary. They're not lasting. Maybe we feel happy for a moment, for a day, for a few hours, and then that sadness can come over us again. Uh, there's a story that a preacher told uh, many years ago, but it's been a great truth in my own life, and so I've come back to it several times. Uh, it's a personal story about his family on Christmas morning. You know, usually Christmas is a time filled with happiness and joy. He said his family was sitting around, everybody was opening their gifts around the Christmas tree in the living room, and everybody's smiling, happy, yes, I got this, you know, excitement, except for one of his sons. He said his son was just kind of opening it and just seemed like he was in a bad mood or something. But he kept watching his son, and every time he would open a gift, his son seemed unhappy. 
And then finally he saw tears welling up in his eyes, but he thought, why is he unhappy? We got him everything that was on his Christmas list. His son ran into his room, closed his door after he opened his last gift. So he got up, he followed his son into his room, he opened the door and he said, what's wrong? His son was in there sobbing. He said, didn't we get you everything that you wanted for Christmas? And he said, yes, Dad, that's the problem. I got everything that I wanted, but I'm still not happy. Now that's a tough lesson that that young man was learning that a lot of adults never seem to ever learn. We can get everything we want and still not be happy. Today, we're in Ecclesiastes again. We just started this series last week, and we're going to talk about happiness, but I'm going to start with a little bit of a kind of some background, some overview in verse 12, and then we're going to get into really this topic of happiness. If you were with us last week, we covered the first 11 verses. It was an introduction to Ecclesiastes. If you missed it, uh, I'm, you're always welcome to go back and listen to it, and because I think that was an important lesson to kind of lay out some of the key words that we're going to study throughout this, this sermon series. In verse 12, it says, I, the teacher, or in Hebrew, as you might remember what the Hebrew word is, it's Koheleth. I, Koheleth, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. A quick recap in the first 11 verses, Koheleth, the teacher, the main voice in Ecclesiastes, has introduced the entire universe to us. He says, you know, there's a repetitive nature of creation. The sun sets and then the sun rises and it hurries to set and rise again. It does it over and over. The, the wind blows from the north and the south and the north and the south and hurries back to do it again. The streams flow into the ocean, but the ocean is never full. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Generations come and generations go and nobody will remember the generations before us and nobody will remember you either. That is how Ecclesiastes started. One of my favorite lessons. <laughs> I like that. It's realistic. I, don't, I wouldn't say pessimistic. So the teacher has introduced the world to us, and now he gets around to introducing himself. I, the teacher, was the king over Israel in Jerusalem. Well, who is this? Compare this with what the narrator has told us in verse 1, and who does that sound like? Well, it sounds like Solomon. We would probably think, okay, son of David from verse 1, king in Jerusalem, this has to be Solomon. However, Solomon never actually identifies himself. And I mentioned last week, you read from scholars, people that really usually know what they're talking about, most of them will say Solomon probably did not write this. It's just somebody taking on a sage, a wisdom writer, taking on the identity, the persona of Solomon to get you to think about Solomon. But because of the proposed date, uh, it, it would have been several centuries after Solomon's time, and the Solomon connection is not made after chapter 2. But for those who say maybe Solomon did write Ecclesiastes, there's the old rabbinic tradition that Solomon wrote Song of Songs in his younger days, which makes sense, wrote Proverbs in his prime, and then wrote Ecclesiastes in his old age. That theory makes sense to me as well. Regardless of whether you think Solomon did write this, or maybe I get that theory, Solomon didn't write it, but we're supposed to think of Solomon. Either way, starting here in verse 12, think about Solomon. You read Solomon's story in 1 Kings chapters 1 through 11, and I'm not going to go back in that and recap Solomon's life. I'm just going to let Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 tell you about Solomon. So look at verse 13 and 14. I applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. 
It is an unhappy business that God has given to humans to be busy with. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun and see all is vanity and a chasing after the wind. So not only does Koheleth get around to introducing himself, but he also introduces God. It's an unhappy business that God has given humans to be busy with. The first time God is mentioned in Ecclesiastes, God is mentioned 40 times. All 40 times that he mentions God, it's always Elohim in Hebrew, which is translated as God. Never Yahweh, which is translated in English as Lord. It's always Elohim. Some have called Ecclesiastes a theology from below, a view of God from a very human perspective, life under the heavens, life under the sun. From the NRSV, that word vanity is used. But I told you last week, that's kind of a tricky translation in English. It's an important word, the key word of the book of Ecclesiastes. NRSV uses vanity, NIV uses meaningless, other translations use pointless or futility, and and on and on, absurdity is one word. The word literally means vapor, or just mere breath, like the waste product of breath. This morning, uh, as John, you mentioned earlier, that cool air, I went outside, I was drinking my coffee, and I could sort of see my breath. Anybody else experience that? I love that. And I reached out my hand and I tried to grab it, but I couldn't do it because that's what this word means. It's elusive, it's vapor, it's there for just a moment and then it's gone. The writer says, I was seeking out, guided by my wisdom, all that's done under heaven. He is searching all things and he said, all things are vapor. They're all havel. It's an unhappy business that God has given us. In 2016, so I'm giving you old stats here. Denmark was considered the happiest country on earth. Now, I don't know how or who discovers that, but the main reason given for why Denmark was the happiest country on earth was because they have low expectations. How about that? That's one way to go through life being happy, lower your expectations. One of the citizens said, I like to think of it as we are the least unhappy people on earth. This is kind of what Koheleth is telling us. It's an unhappy business God has given us to be busy with. Lower your expectations about life. In verses 15 through 18, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a chasing after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation or grief or sorrow. And those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. So basically what we're being told from the vantage point of Solomon, who is the wisest person to ever live, that there is a law of diminishing returns when it comes to wisdom. He sought out wisdom, but wisdom did not provide all that he needed. Wisdom is important, but the more wisdom he had, the more grief, the more sorrow that he observed on this earth. In America, we say that all humans have the right to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, you've heard that before. 
When we get into chapter 2, and if you're following in a digital copy, you're going to go ahead and flip over to chapter 2 right now. We're going to keep reading. This is Solomon's pursuit of happiness. And see where it landed it, where it got him. I'm starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. I said to myself, come now, I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But again, this was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, how to lay hold of folly until I, I might see what was good for mortals to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So this isn't just a selfish pursuit he's telling us. This is for all of you. This is for all of humanity. I wanted to find out what would make mortals happy, what would make all human beings happy. I have the ability to do that, so I'll go ahead and do that search for you. What will make you happy? And what's going to follow in verses 3 through 9 is what we might call a royal resume. How many of you have ever had to make a resume? Uh, if you're applying for a job or whatever it may be, you're going to make a resume. You put on there your accomplishments, things that you're proud of, things that you want, potentially a future employer to think about. This is Solomon's royal resume, the king over Israel in Jerusalem. Here is what he accomplished, starting in verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. What he's mentioning here, because this is kind of an ancient type of language and it, it may sound strange to us, this is what we would call a victory garden. Egyptian and Mesopotamian rulers had their own victory gardens. When you would go in and conquer another nation, you would take all kinds of things from that nation that you've conquered, including their trees and their plants, and you bring them back home and you replant them because they can grow better in your own land. It is a way to show that you've conquered somebody. It's a victory garden. Solomon said, I had those. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered from myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and the delights of the flesh, many concubines. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. So think about this for just a moment. Let that text dwell in, and then think about this word, goat. Anybody familiar with this word? If not, I've told you what it means up here on the screen. Goat is not referring to an animal the way that we use it in our own culture today. It refers to the greatest of all time. I heard a story about a kid who, who loved to play baseball, and he would go out in the backyard all by himself. He would throw the ball up in the air and just swing and hit the ball. Anybody ever do that as kids? You know, I did that. I still do that sometimes with wiffle balls. So this kid went out there and he said, I'm the greatest batter in the world. He threw it up, swing and a miss. Picked the ball up again. He said, I am the greatest batter in the world. He threw it up in the air, swing and a miss again. The third time he said, I am the greatest batter in the world. He threw it up in the air, swing and a miss the third time. And then he said, wow, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. So that was his take on it. We, we like, in the sports world especially, or any craft, people like to, to have that debate. Who is the greatest of all time? 
Right? I don't know why we're so fascinated by that, but we want to know who's the greatest of all time. So let me try a little experiment with you. I'm going to say a sport, and without starting a side conversation, just say out loud who you think the GOAT is, who you think the greatest of all time is in that sport. Let's try it. Basketball. Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan okay. Football. Tom Brady. Easy. Baseball. Mickey Mantle is what I heard. I, I didn't know how you would answer that. Uh, I, if I, as a kid, I would have said Sammy Sosa because he was my favorite player, but he's obviously not the greatest of all time. Hockey. <laughs> that took longer. Not as many hockey fans. Wayne Gretzky. Soccer. I don't really watch soccer. Okay, Leo Messi would probably be who he would say today. So you could go, you could watch sports shows. They're going to argue. They're going to say this person's the greatest of all time or that person's the greatest of all time. What do we base it off of? Well, we base it off of team championships, individual accomplishments, stats, and that repeated over and over through time. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up is because that's what Solomon is saying. He was the GOAT. He was the greatest of all time when it comes to wisdom and wealth. He was the wisest person who ever lived. That's what he's telling us at the end of chapter 1. And everything we've read so far in chapter 2, he is saying he had it all. He had those victory gardens. He conquered other nations. He had singers. He had entertainers. He had slaves that were born in his house. He had many women. He had flocks and herds and silver and gold. There was nobody greater than Solomon. You couldn't say if only about Solomon. You know, sometimes you'd say, if I only had this, then I maybe would have been happy or been complete. For Solomon, there's no if only. He had it all. So what do we learn from the goat of wealth and wisdom in his time? What's his conclusion? What's he teaching us? Well, in verse 10 and 11, this is what the goat of wisdom and wealth tells us. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure... For my heart found pleasure from all my toil, and this was my reward from all my toil. Verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent doing it. And again, all is vanity, vapor, mere breath, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That's the conclusion right there. Has anybody ever given you the advice, just do what makes you happy? That's advice that gets tossed around a lot. There's danger in that. Because what makes us happy in the short term may be really destructive for us in the long term. We've known people like that. Maybe you've experienced that. But that was Solomon's motto. He said, I did not deny myself anything. Anything my eyes desired, I had it all. I was it all. And I just went for it. I just indulged myself. And in the end... What was it? Havel. Nothing. Vapor. Meaningless. That's what he discovered. He had it all. He experienced it all. He indulged in everything. And he said, in the end, it's all just vapor. The guy on the top right, right there, is a guy named Ted Turner. When I was a teenager, they called him Billionaire Ted because he had so much money and it made a big impact on the cable television industry, if you watch TBS or TNT, it's named after him. Ted Turner is quoted in saying that life is like a B-grade movie. You don't want to stop watching it in the middle of it, but you don't want to go back and re-watch it either. 
And that's coming from a guy who has all this success and all this money. He's saying, I don't know if I'd want to go back and relive it again. Alexander the Great conquered the world. And as legend has it, at the age of 31, he wept. He wept because he said, there's nobody left to conquer. After conquering everything, probably had more power than anybody in the world at the time, he was left unsatisfied. Albert Einstein, you know that name? He's a genius. His name does kind of last beyond generations. And he once said, it's strange to be so universally known and yet be so lonely. Somebody that was known all over the world, he went to bed at night and he just felt lonely. Solomon said, I had everything. Everything you could ever want, everything that you would ever think would make you happy, and in the end, it's just hevel, it's meaningless, it's vapor. Now, we don't have time to cover the rest of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, so I'm going to give you three bullet points to summarize the rest of the chapter for you. In verse 12 through 16, he's going to compare the wise and the fool. And he tells us wisdom does have its advantages. Wisdom is important. It's better to be wise than be a fool, but the problem with Koheleth is, in the end, we're all going to die. That sounds depressing. I said that to somebody on the phone earlier this week, and they said, whoo, that took a dark turn. And I said, you didn't read Ecclesiastes this week, did you? So that's how I know. Uh, The wise and the fool are going to suffer the same fate in the end. That bothers Koheleth. And then in verse 17 through 23, what really bothers him, especially from Solomon's perspective, is all of this, when he's gone, he doesn't really have control over what's going to happen to it. All that toil, all that work, and somebody who is a fool may get control of it. And that was the case in Solomon's story. And then in the end, in verse 24 through 26, this is where that statement, eat, drink, and be merry, comes from. Well, you might as well enjoy the little things in life. Another theme that he'll come back to throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I mentioned last week that we can view this from a Christian perspective. We, at the vantage point of being on the other side of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus... And although we don't dismiss the wisdom we learn from Ecclesiastes, we still look at this a little differently. And so back to our scripture reading from earlier today that Craig Rapp read for us from Philippians chapter 3. I won't go as far back as verse 2, but I will start in verse 3. Paul gives us the Christian perspective, and, and Paul gives us his own resume. Solomon gives us his royal resume The Apostle Paul gives us his resume. In verse 3 he says, For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God, and boast in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. As followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be humble, we're not supposed to be prideful. And Paul's acknowledging that, but then he's going to go on to say, However, if I did boast, here's what I would boast about. That's a good way of bragging by also acknowledging that he shouldn't be bragging. In verse 4 he says, Even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more, Paul says. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
Yeah, Paul is telling us, kind of like Solomon, he was also the goat. He was the greatest of all time when it comes to law-based righteousness. He was from the right people group. He was a Hebrew of Hebrew. He was a Pharisee. But not only was he a Pharisee, he was top of the Pharisee class. He had that zeal. And when the early church was forming and people were following the way of Jesus, he was persecuting them, throwing them in prison, killing them. When it comes to following the law of Moses, he was completely blameless. Paul was saying, if anybody can brag, I could brag. I was the goat. I was the greatest of all time. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 7-11, through 11, he says, Yet whatever gains I had, Gains is a word that's used a lot in Ecclesiastes. Whatever gains I had, these I've come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish. That's what this translation says. Craig, when he read earlier, I think that was the NIV, it said garbage. The word literally is dung. It's a strong word. I consider all of that dung. I consider it all rubbish. It's not the same word that's used in Ecclesiastes as Havel, but it's the same spirit. Kind of like what Saul, uh, Solomon was saying in Ecclesiastes. Had it all, experienced it all, was the goat, and it just was worthless in the end. Paul's saying it's all rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In verse 9, And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings, by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This was Paul's take. This is the Christian perspective. He's saying all of that that the world has to offer, or whatever it is that you think you are so great at, it's all vapor, it's all rubbish, it's all garbage compared to this pursuit of actually knowing Jesus Christ my Lord to share in his sufferings, to become like him in his death, and somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's Paul's take on what we're reading from Ecclesiastes. So I'll come back to the question that I asked you at the beginning. What makes you happy? <laughs> well, maybe this lesson, because remember, Ecclesiastes isn't the most optimistic book in the Bible. Maybe this lesson is just really reminding us of what's not going to make us happy what's not going to satisfy us in the long run. But kind of like I ended last week using the NIV's word and the NIV translation, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless, utterly meaningless. And a life that can feel meaningless if you want to find meaning, maybe not happiness, follow what Paul's talking about. Not the pursuit of happiness, but the pursuit of knowing Jesus Christ. To share in His sufferings to become like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. I would like to end the sermon by just saying, now let's go out and figure out what that means. Let's go out and pursue that. But I feel like I need to remind you here in just a second as we offer this invitation, 
If you need prayers, if you need encouragement, if you want to share in that death and resurrection of Jesus and be baptized into Christ, we call this our invitation. You can come up front, talk to me or one of our elders, or find them around the room, or talk to us afterwards if you need to respond. I know some of you are struggling, some of you just need prayers, some of you need to talk a little bit further. Use this opportunity if you need to. We'll invite you to stand, Aaron, back up here. We'll continue to sing.